Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, and everything old is new again here on Obscure. Everything is reverting to form. Sue is going back to Phillotson. Jude is alone. Arabella has her eyes on something or someone. We think we know who. And everybody's kind of where they were, but only sadder, which is, of course as it should be in Jude the Obscure. Everything is uh, always terrible in this world of Wessex, and we like it that way. I was away for a little while. You wouldn't know it because these episodes come out weekly, but I've been traveling. I was in Northern California. I was in Southern California. I was in Oregon. You can't say Oregon there because they get upset with you when you when you do so. So I have been traveling, you know, my own my own little Wessex County. If Sonoma Sonoma kind of can be Mary Green in a way because it is um it is uh agricultural there. It is still a farming community. They farm grapes and they farm wealth. That is what they farm there in Sonoma. And like in Mary Green, there's always tumult. There's always change. Two years ago, there was a big fire there. That's, that's a little tumult. And then I made my way south to Los Angeles for work. 
and you could easily call Los Angeles the Christminster for the showbiz set because look, it's where people go to make it. You know what I mean? In Jude's day, you went to Christminster to make it to kind of, you know, figure out if, if the world would have you. And in showbiz, you go out to Hollywood to do the same. Now I don't live in Hollywood. I don't live in Los Angeles because I decided I did not want to be part of that world, at least as intimately as I might be. Hence, I live in the wilds of Connecticut. But you get a similar sensation walking down Hollywood Boulevard as Jude may get walking the streets of Christminster. I mean, there are all the temples of the high arts, right? I mean, I may be exaggerating a little bit when I say the high arts. But, you know, you see like uh, Man's Chinese Theater and you see, um, I don't know, whatever garbage they have, all this, the, the stars on the sidewalk. And you see, uh, you know, Chewbacca posing to take pictures with you, you know, uh, and he can't charge you, but he can get tips. So if you're ever there in Hollywood and you want your picture taken with Chewbacca or Batman or uh, uh, Pikachu or whomever is standing there on the sidewalk, they can't charge you, but they can take tips. So you don't have to, you don't have to pay them anything. Oh, they'll get mad at you. Believe me, they'll get mad at you if you don't give them a tip. But really, who's the asshole for putting on a costume and standing outside in 102 degrees, you know, pretending to be some movie character when you could just get a job? Who's the asshole? They are. But, you know, you walk down Hollywood Boulevard, you see the stars, you see, you know, the shiny stuff and you say, oh, I'm here. I've made it. That's that's the way Jude was when he first got to Christminster. And then I went up and away to uh, some place a little bit smaller, a little bit more arty, you know, Melchester. Let's call Portland the Melchester of the United States of America. And uh, I did not stay long. I mean, I was just there for the weekend, you know, just doing some shows, just scraping by the way Jude was scraping by there and Phillotson was scraping by there at Melchester. And now I have returned to the wilds of Connecticut and anxious to see what happens with our friends there. Everything will be new again. Chapter five. The next afternoon. The familiar Christminster fog still hung over all things. Sue's slim shape was only just discernible going towards the station. Jude had no heart to go to his work that day. Neither could he go anywhere in the direction by which she would be likely to pass. He went in an opposite one, to a dreary, strange, flat scene where boughs dripped and coughs and consumption lurked, and where he had never been before. So he's walking over to some shanty town, you know, where the trees hang low and the coughs issue forth and the consumption is catching. She's, Sue's gone from me. Gone, he murmured miserably. She, in the meantime, had left by the train and reached Alfredston Road, where she entered the steam tram and was conveyed into the town. It had been her request to Phillotson that he should not meet her. She wished, she said, to come to him voluntarily, to his very house and hearthstone. It was Friday evening, which had been chosen because the schoolmaster was disengaged at four o'clock that day till the Monday morning following. 
The little car she hired at the bear to drive her to Marygreen set her down at the end of the lane, half a mile from the village, by her desire, and preceded her to the schoolhouse with such portion of her luggage as she had brought. On its return, she encountered it and asked the driver if he had found the master's house open. The man informed her that he had and that her things had been taken in by the schoolmaster himself. She could now enter Mary Green without exciting much observation. She crossed by the well and under the trees to the pretty new school on the other side and lifted the latch of the dwelling without knocking. Phillotson stood in the middle of the room awaiting her as requested. So she had requested every detail of her arrival down to him waiting in the middle of the room. I mean, you know, calm down, Cinderella, you know, calm your petticoats down just a little bit. She is in her mind the heroine of some grand tragedy, and she's scripting it just so, so she can arrive, her luggage preceding her into this gloomy little town and this pretty little schoolhouse where she will be uh, met by her ex-husband and husband-to-be. I've come, Richard, said she, looking pale and shaken and sinking into a chair. I cannot believe you forgive your wife. I mean, you can just hear the strings welling from the orchestra. There is an aria coming, and I don't particularly want to hear it. Everything, darling Susanna, said Phillotson. She started at the endearment, though it had been spoken advisedly, without fervor. Then she nerved herself again. My children are dead, and it is right that they should be. Jesus Christ. Oh, such a drama queen. I mean, I just, I just can't with her right now. I just can't. You know, she has, she's letting me down so thoroughly as a character right now. You know, this kind of self-flagellation, this punishment, this abasement, it's really letting me down. I liked Sue. I don't, I liked old Sue, you know, it took me a while. I will admit it took me a while to like Sue. Now I like Sue and now I don't like Sue. I am glad she said, oh, then she says, I am glad almost. What? I am glad they are dead. They were sin begotten. They were sacrificed to teach me how to live. Their death was the first stage of my purification. That's why they have not died in vain. You will take me back? I mean, what is this? What is this lunacy that is dribbling out of her mouth? I get it. She lost her kids and she's looking to find meaning in their loss, but to call it a sacrifice so that she may live, to say it's better that they're dead. I mean, what kind of ghoulish monster are you turning into? It really is. It's like turning into like, it's turning into like the Handmaid's Tale, you know, where we suffer our bereavement in a kind of ecstasy. 
right? An ecstatic suffering. We're thrilled to be confronted with the horrors of this life because I guess they teach us something about piety. Well, you know, fuck piety. Live your life, you know? Just be human. Suffer. We all suffer. Sue, you can suffer without abnegating your, uh, your, your, yourself, which is what you're doing. You're just throwing your hands up. Worse than that, you're bringing them down on the tombs of your children. You know, you're kicking them further underground saying you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have been born. You're sin begotten. My God, aren't we all sin begotten? Nobody's pure among us. And if there are pure people among us, I hate them because they're annoying. He was so stirred by her pitiful words and tone, then he did more than he had meant to do. He bent and kissed her cheek. Sue imperceptibly shrank away, her flesh quivering under the touch of his lips. Phillotson's heart sank, for desire was renascent in him. You still have an aversion to me. Oh, no, dear, I have been driving through the damp and I was chilly, she said with a hurried smile of apprehension. When are we going to have the marriage? Soon? So you know what's next for her, what she wants, really what she wants, and we get it in this minute. She wants to, as they say in the Bible, lay with him. Not because she wants him, but specifically because she so desperately does not. She wants to suffer under his weight. You know, she wants to be punished in that very specific way because it will, it, it will be the cruelest thing to her that she can endure. And so, you know, she's putting on this brave little smile. She doesn't want him to know, but that's what she craves. She craves, in a sense, to be consumed by him to be destroyed by him, metaphorically, and to give herself to him as her own sacrifice, you know, to live basically on fire for him, to let him ignite the fire and have it be a cold, furious fire that can burn on her and never give her the release of mercy. She wants to be burned in a kind of cold fire, the cold fire of his love for her, which she can do nothing about because she can't return it. She can only suffer in it. So that little kiss on the cheek is just a foretaste of what is to come. He is to come. I made a pun. I made a gross pun. And look, that was below me. That was beneath me. But it was great. And I'll be back. And we're back. Sue is raring to get back with Phillotson, and I am raring to read about it. When are we going to have the marriage? Soon? Tomorrow morning early, I thought, if you really wish. I'm sending round to the vicar to let him know you are come. I have told him all, 
and he highly approves. He says it will bring our lives to a triumphant and satisfactory issue. But are you sure of yourself? It is not too late to refuse now if you think you can't bring yourself to it, you know. Yes, yes, I can. I want it done quick. Tell him. Tell him at once. My strength is tried by the undertaking. I can't wait long. My strength is tried by the undertaking. I can't wait long. What, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I fully understand what she means when she says her strength is tried by the undertaking. The undertaking of waiting? waiting to be married to re, to be remarried or is is it that the she may she may she she worries that she may run away or something she may stop it if she waits too long what is she worried about i mean maybe both i think what she's saying to him is i just can't wait to get it done but what she's saying to herself is i may flee if we don't do it quickly and phillotson to his credit is saying like look we don't have to do this you know phillotson's being a good guy here uh, Phillotson saying, I want you here voluntarily. I want, I want this to be done because you want it to be done. And we'll be a couple because you want us to be a couple and we'll be husband and wife. And she's saying a hundred percent, man, totally, man. Yeah, dude, let's friggin' do this thing. But we know how she really feels. And Phillotson knows how she really feels. That's the other thing about it. Phillotson knows, but he's lying to himself because he never got over her. And also, just from a pragmatic point of view, he sees his own advancement in his marriage to her. Have something to eat and drink then and go over to your room at Mrs. Edlin's. I'll tell the vicar half past eight tomorrow before anybody's about, if that's not too soon for you. My friend Gillingham is here to help us in the ceremony. He's been good enough to come all the way from Shaston at great inconvenience to himself. Unlike a woman in ordinary, whose eye is so keen for material things, Sue seemed to see nothing of the room they were in, or any detail of her environment. But on moving across the parlor to put down her muff, she uttered a little, oh, and grew paler than before. Her look was that of the condemned criminal who catches sight of his coffin. What? said Phillotson. The flap of the bureau chanced to be open, and in placing her muff upon it, her eye had caught a document which lay there. Oh, only a funny surprise, she said, trying to laugh away her cry as she came back to the table. Ah, yes, said Phillotson, the license, it has just come. It may as well be her guillotine, you know? I mean, I guess that's the same as saying the condemned criminal catches sight of his coffin. Um, but the difference is, Sue, you know, when the criminal catches sight of his coffin, he knows he's going to ha have the hangman's noose around his neck. They're going to spring the thing. He's going to break his neck. He's going to poop his pants. That's going to be that. When the condemned man sees the guillotine, he knows he's going to put his head in the thing. The thing's going to come down. It's going to chop it off like a potato. And that's going to be that. But Sue, seeing the license knows that her execution is going to be long and slow and incredibly painful. And so she says, oh, oh my, oh, there it is, isn't it? The license. And yeah, and, and, and Phillotson is, uh, you know, burbling about, pretending all is right. Gillingham 
now joined them from his room above, and Sue nervously made herself agreeable to him by talking on whatever she thought likely to interest him, except herself, though that interested him most of all. She obediently ate some supper and prepared to leave for her lodging hard by. Phillotson crossed the green with her, bidding her good night at Mrs. Edlin's door. The old woman accompanied Sue to her temporary quarters and helped her to unpack. Among other things, she laid out a nightgown, tastefully embroidered. Oh, I didn't know that was put in, said Sue quickly. I didn't mean it to be. Here is a different one. She handed a new and absolutely plain garment of coarse and unbleached calico. But this is the prettiest, said Mrs. Edlin. That one is no better than very sackcloth of scripture. Yes, I meant it to be. Give me the other. Right. She is just going to martyr herself now to the end of the book, I guess. She's going to wear her hair shirt and she's going to submit to Phillotson. She's going to talk to Gillingham, that old lump of pudding. She's going to do everything she can to make herself as miserable as humanly possible. And to let no one know she is suffering. And of course, in letting no, in letting no one she, uh, know she is suffering, she will let everybody know. She will let nobody forget her martyrdom. You know, she's going to she's going to do her best to kind of, you know, lace it up as tightly as she can. But of course, everybody will know, you know, this haunted bride walking about dragging the corpses of her dead children behind her everywhere she goes, like cans clattering on the back bumper of a car of the newlywed. That is who she will be. And, you know. There, she had other options. That's the thing. She really could have bound herself closer to Jude, and they could have gotten married. They could have stayed together, and she would have been miserable, but she would have been lit by a different kind of fire. It would have been the one fire of a single candle, you know, lit between them, keeping them both a little bit warm in the winter. But now she's going to be doused in whatever that Game of Thrones dragon that breathes that ice, you know, the zombie dragon. She's basically the zombie dragon and she's breathing icy fire wherever she goes. And she is of it and she is consumed by it. And she's hoping to be shattered the way ice can be shattered. She took it, uh, meaning the, uh, the nightgown, and began rending it with all her might, the tears resounding through the house like a screech owl. Oh, so she took the nice one and she's ripping it apart because she can. She cannot have pretty things anymore. But my dear, dear, whatever, it is adulterous. It signifies what I don't feel. I bought it long ago to please Jude. It must be destroyed. Mrs. Edlin lifted her hands, and Sue excitedly continued to tear the linen into strips, laying the pieces in the fire. "'You need ha give it to me,' said the widow. "'It do make my heart ache to see such pretty open work as that a burned by the flames. Not that ornamental night rails can be much use to a old, a, a old 
Umin like I. I mean, it's spelled a a apostrophe O U L D apostrophe U O O M A N like I. My days for such be all past and gone. Right. It's like she's got this little Victoria's Secret teddy, you know, that she's that she's ripping up because she thought she'd buy it to be sexy for Jude. And the old crone, Mrs. Edlin, is going, hey, now that's a that's a nice little teddy. Why don't you give it to me? You know, even though, you know, I got nobody to wear it for. But still, you know, it's nice. Maybe that old farmer come around, you know, the old farmer in the fields. Maybe he'll come around and see me in this pretty little thing. Give me, give me, uh, give me the what have you for. It is an accursed thing. It reminds me of what I want to forget, Sue repeated. It is only fit for the fire. Lord, you be too strict. What do you use such words for and condemn to hell your, your dear little innocent children that's lost to ye? Upon my life, I don't call that religion. Good. Thank you, Mrs. Edlin, for being the first person to talk some sense into her. To that pretty little head of Sue's. I don't call that religion. Nor do I, Mrs. Edlin, nor do I. Sue flung her face upon the bed, sobbing. Oh, don't, don't. That kills me. She remained shaken with her grief and slipped down upon her knees. I tell ye what, you ought not to marry this man again, said Mrs. Edlin indignantly. You are in love with the other still. Yes, I must. I am his already. Pishoo! You beat other mans. If you don't like to commit yourselves to the binding vow again, just at first, it was all the more credit to your consciences, considering your reasons, and you might have lived on and made it all right at last. After all, it concerned nobody but your own two selves. All right, she's saying what I just said. Like, what are you doing? Like, you didn't have to do this. You could have just stayed together and made it right. You know, between it didn't concern anybody but your own two selves. And here you are being a spoiled little baby about it. A tragedy happened and you're acting like tragedies never happened to anybody else. And you want to set everything on fire for it. You want to set this pretty little nightgown on fire for it. Well, what's it going to do? What good is it going to do anybody for you to bind yourself to Phillips and you're going to end up making him miserable too? You don't love him. You never loved him. And it was good that you followed your conscience and married Jude. And now you're turning your back on that. What a dumb little thing you are. Richard says he'll have me back and I'm bound to go. If he had refused, it might not have been so much my duty to give up Jude, but she remained with her face in the bedclothes and Mrs. Edlin left the room. Phillotson, in the interval, had gone back to his friend Gillingham, who still sat over the supper table. They soon rose and walked out on the green to smoke a while. A light was burning in Sue's room, a shadow moving now and then across the blind. Gillingham had evidently been impressed with the indefinable charm of Sue, and after a silence he said, Well, you've all but got her again at last. She can't very well go a second time. The pear has dropped into your hand. The pear. Ugh. <laughs> Honestly, what a pile of pudding this dude is. Just the worst. And Phillotson, you know, Phillotson and he are a happy pair. You know, they can, they can be pretentious together. And look, nobody knows pretension better than I. I, who hosts a podcast about Jude the Obscure. I recognize pretension, game, recognize game. And these two are pretentious. 
Yes, I suppose I am right in taking her at her word. I confess there seems a touch of selfishness in it. Apart from her being what she is, of course, a luxury for a fogey like me, it will set me right in the eyes of the clergy and orthodox laity who have never forgiven me for letting her go. So I may get back in some degree into my old track. Well, if you've got any sound reason for marrying her again, do it now in God's name. I was always against your opening the cage door and letting the bird go in such an obviously suicidal way. You might have been a school inspector by this time, or a reverend, if you hadn't been so weak about her. I did myself irreparable damage, I know it. Once you've got her housed again, stick to her. So, you know, Gilliam, Gilliam who I suspect has never been laid. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. He's never had sex. He is a virgin. He is corpulent. He is pretentious. He is absurd. He compares compares marriage uh, to putting a bird in a cage and never letting it fly free. And of course, that's the way a lot of men are about their relationships, even to this day. You know, you just, you, you get a pretty little thing and you just put it in a cage and you just look at it and you go, that's my pretty little thing. You know, it becomes a possession. And people are not possessions. We have to let them express themselves. And Phillotson uh, was right to open that cage door. Even if it was uh, letting the bird fly in such a, quote, obviously suicidal way. Because you end up, you end up uh, either being responsible for the death in keeping your bird caged or responsible for the death in letting your bird fly free. And the truth of the matter is you bear far less responsibility when you follow your conscience and do what is best. Uh, I'm, I'm phrasing this terribly, but he, he bears no responsibility for the bird's freedom. The bird's freedom is its inherent right. And I'm not saying Sue is a bird, but I'm just continuing the metaphor, Gillingham's stupid metaphor. And, you know, it's like that. It's like that terrible poster. If you love something, set it free. Well, you know, it wasn't yours to hold on to to begin with. You have no business keeping it caged. Whatever it is, we look on it differently now. You know, we look on the institution of marriage differently now, I think, where we are encouraged to support our partners in whatever manner we can. If they desire something, it is our it is incumbent on us as their partners to help them achieve whatever that is. And if they desire to be out of the marriage or if they desire whatever, I don't think it's on us to say no. That's what love is. Love is support. I don't know. Did Phillotson ever really love her? Yeah, I guess he did. I think he did. I think he loved her in the only way he knew how to love her. And I think she taught him, in a sense, how to love. By forcing his hand, that's when he really fell in love with her. By setting her free. Now set me free, please, for just a minute. And then I will be back here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Obscure. You know, this episode isn't the darkest one we've had, but we've gotten into some dark terrain here. It's been a theme with Jude, you know, it's just bad shit keeps happening. You know, that's a, that's common in literature. You set characters out into the world and then you just drop rocks on their head. But I keep thinking about what other writers would think about Hardy and his ways just kind of dropping murder suicides on us left and right. So uh, Gary Steingart, who's one of my favorite authors, was kind enough to agree to talk with me about Jude. He's the author of five books, including Super Sad, True Love Story, which I love, and his latest one, which I love, called Lake Success. And uh, let's talk to him. Have you ever read Jude the Obscure? Just as a just as a, a a basis level base level for the conversation, and the answer no. But I'm holding up a copy here, <laughs> so you have a copy. So notice that the spine has not been cracked at all. So I got this as a birthday gift from a friend of mine about five years ago. Uh-huh. And first of all, I was like, seriously, you're giving me a book as a birthday present? Right. <laughs> I'm the famous writer. I get I get free books all the time. Yeah, yeah, I get free books all the time. I mean, like, give me something nice or cash, right? <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm surrounded by books. You know, all I got is books. So I was really pissed off about that. I thought it was a very kind of eh. – but his whole life is really about Jude the Obscure. And every year he's like, so have you read it? Wait, you're fr- why is your friend's whole life about Jude the Obscure? He keeps telling me about why, but I always tune out because I just don't care. <laughs> you got it. This will change your writing. It's so great, and blah blah blah. And I just, I just, I just go into my safe space and just think about, you know, dancing with marshmallows, the stuff I like, you know. Right. I can tell you, having uh, being familiar with your writing, and yeah. now being very familiar with Jude the Obscure, it mm-hmm. will change your writing for the worse. For the worst. For the worst. I happen to I happen to love the book, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it does not mesh at all with mm-hmm. the stuff you do, and I will tell you why. Okay, it is a book in which unrelentingly horrible things happen to mm-hmm. uh, Jude and his uh, beloved Sue. Fate is constantly mm-hmm. dealing them a bad hand, mm-hmm. and here's. Uh, I have two questions for you about that. First of all, one's a comment. First of all, it seems 
that seems very Russian to me. And you are a Russian uh, writer, Russian born American now writer. Sure. Uh, and it seems to me like a lot of Russian literature, and I say this from a place of almost total ignorance, but my impression of Russian literature is that it is a lot about human calamity and mm-hmm. suffering. Yeah. But, so. yeah. yeah. But the difference is, mm-hmm. I think, a lot of Russian literature is leavened with humor. Yeah. And Jude isn't, is it? No. Oh, un- oh, oh, no. Humorless. Utterly humorless. I'm looking at the cover. Even the cover is humorless. What, what edition is that? What cover is it? Uh, the Modern Library. It has a great quote from Virginia Woolf, the greatest <laughs> tragic writer of fiction novelist. I'm already like, okay, that's like three strikes maybe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's yeah, just- English, good God. Novelist, it all sucks. Yeah, it all it. sucks. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I'm loving, yeah. I'm loving the suffering, but yeah. your, your writing is uh, all it's not, I mean, it's, there's terrible things that happen, but it's full of humor. I mean, it's, it's absurdist, hilarious stuff. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a kind of Russian Jewish humor, which I call humor from the edge of the grave, where you're always like, they're about to kill us, but hey, let's, uh, <laughs> let's laugh. laugh about it. <laughs> Before we get shot into the, the, the grave. Um, so, yeah, and now I'm trying to think, like, did my friend, who's another novelist, did he get me this novel to try to screw up my writing style? So that, you know, so that I would become, you know, tragic oh. and lose what little audience I have. Interesting. So that I obscure. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, and, and when when uh, when the word obscure is uttered on the podcast, I am obligated to give a uh, perfunctory. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's another, I mean, let me ask you, is Jude really obscure? I mean, does he have no Twitter followers? What's what's his deal? His, he has almost no social media presence at all. He Holy was he, yeah, he was briefly on MySpace. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and, that's tragic. Right. And still keeps the account. But it's it's basically inactive because <laughs> MySpace is inactive. And everybody's like, dude, you need to get on the gram. You need to get Snapchat. And he's he, he thinks he's too good for it. He's his own worst enemy. You know, I mean, I'm on all of those things. And please follow me on everything, listeners to the podcast, uh, Steinkart, at Twitter, um, uh, Instagram. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to ankle obscurity with everything I have at my disposal. So this title just kills me. Well, you're you know? doing it by appearing on this podcast. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So. He's obscure in the sense that he, is, he comes from nothing. He comes from very modest means okay. and devotes – much of his life to trying to rise, to trying to rise above obscurity, uh-huh. and then fails. Uh-huh. Ends up falling in love with his first cousin. Uh-huh. Their relationship. They're both married at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, they end up together. Their relationship is good, but but sort of unleashes a series of tragic events mm-hmm. that end up essentially destroying everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad now I can, now when I'm at parties, literary parties, I'd be like, Hey, you guys need to obscure <laughs> reference, whatever you just, you know, I'm like, I like my cousin, but not that much. Huh? Right. Nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. And, th- and that you've got, you've got the essential humor mm-hmm. of Jude the obscure. I mean, you, that joke already is funnier than anything in Jude the obscure. Wow. That wasn't even that funny, but no. okay. That's amazing. But you're a comic guy. What draws you to the purely tragic? That's an interesting. Well, I didn't know anything about it when I started reading it. It was a case of exactly what you have, which is a book that had been sitting on my bookshelf for over 20 years unread. Mm -hmm. And then I decided, well, I'll read it and make a podcast about it. Huh. 
Really interesting. I could could there be a Hulu series, but set like today with Jude? You know, he's in L.A. Maybe less obscure. <laughs> yeah. get, right. He gets off a bus from uh, in Indiana. Right. He's trying to to rise above. He's trying to make it as a reality star. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, he falls for. I mean, I guess I'd just keep it his cousin. Yeah. His and, cousin back in Indiana. That's who he keeps wanting to get with. Uh huh. He can't get enough gram followers and she's not interested. I mean, you're, you're, this is why you are the success that you are. You're able to translate fairly esoteric things into accessible mainstream joy for people. Thank you. This is OK. Well, now I know what I'm doing for my next book. Uh, <laughs> I think Jude is a little bit of a triggering name for some people. So we'll have to figure out, you know, some other name. Yeah, just go. I mean, just shorten it to Jew. Jew, Jew the Obscure. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> Maybe Jared the Obscure? Sure. Jared, well, Jared's going to be a little triggering too now for people yeah, for the next uh, several administrations, let's say. Drew. Okay. Drew the Obscure. Drew the Obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, let's set up some meetings. Yeah, you can, you can have EP credit if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do, do you ever, when you're writing, do you ever feel like yeah. you are uh, inflicting too much suffering on your characters? Is that ever a thing with writers or are they just like, let me just keep keeping it on? Well, uh, I mean, I do get to torture writer, uh, torture my characters in the way that I can't torture you know, people I don't like in real life. So there is that. that that's always a plus. You know, you can really kind of go to town on characters. And, and a lot of my characters – well, the last character in my book, Lake Success, was a hedge fund manager. Mm-hmm. So I thought, hey, you know, screw it. I can torture him all I want. You know, who's going to love him? And I did inflict a lot of pain on him. I put him on a greyhound ride across the country. That was painful, except then I had to torture myself because I actually had to take the same greyhound bus. <laughs> it four months to get across, and it was pretty painful, but um, also fascinating. So, yeah, I do believe in, 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 in uh, inflicting the kind of pain on characters that you don't want to see in real life. Writer is, a, is, is a, maybe a little bit of a sadist by nature. Uh, yeah. And no, none more than Thomas Hardy, who apparently tortured the living crap out of this poor Jude dude. Oh, I mean, yeah, he really, he really, he really has a thing against Jude. Really what he has a thing against, it seems like in the book, is, is uh, just the institution of marriage oh, yeah. and religion oh. and, and social mores, or oh, con- uh, contemporary social mores of the time. Wow. And this is said in, it says in the back, England? Yeah, yeah. Wow. In like the 1890s. Uh, oh. He's an angry dude. Thomas Hardy is clearly an angry dude. Angry dude? What happened to him? Well, the, as far as I and, – and I again, I've done no research. I hadn't read the book. I knew nothing about Thomas Hardy. The little that I know is that uh, Jude the Obscure was his final novel. He lived mm-hmm. for many more years but devoted uh, the rest of his life to poetry. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. He's known as a poet, right? Yeah. He was also an architect, I believe. And I think was in his own. I don't know if it was a loveless, but unhappy marriage, I believe. Oh, my God. He's a Victorian triple threat. I know. He's got everything. Got everything. Poetry. Well, I, right? I would, I would, like, I would yeah. encourage you not to read it. I mean, it's. Thank you. No, this is great. And now I can tell my friend when the annual, oh, did you read Drew the Obscure comes up? I'd be like, I know you're trying to screw me. But, you know, my friend Michael here said. <laughs> don't read it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to mess you up. Don't read it. Yeah, don't read it. But and I was going to say, but listen to the podcast. But I know you won't do that either. No, I'll listen to the podcast and I'll try to adapt it for TV. But I'll, I, I, <laughs> that's <laughs> fine. 
I'm totally fine with that. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you, Gary. As he said, he is not obscure. He is on Twitter. He is on the gram. He's obviously desperate for attention. Find him at Steingart. And maybe you think, well, how do you spell Steingart? I'll tell you. S-H-T-E-Y-N-G-A-R-T. Now let us resume our reading. Phillotson has been talking to Gillingham, who just said, once you've got her housed again, stick to her. Phillotson was more evasive tonight. He did not care to admit clearly that his taking Sue to him again had at bottom nothing to do with repentance of letting her go, but was primarily a human instinct flying in the face of custom and profession. Yes, He said, yes, I shall do that. I know woman better now. Whatever justice there was in releasing her, there was little logic for one holding my views on other subjects. So he's saying, I am conservative in all things. If you recall, he said that to Gillingham eons ago. I am a conservative, and yet I know that this is the right thing to do. And now he's saying, there was clearly no logic in my Uh, liberalism there when I know myself to be conservative. And he's lying. He's lying. Gillingham looked at him and wondered whether it would ever happen that the reactionary spirit induced by the world's sneers and his own physical wishes would make Phillotson more orthodoxly cruel to her than he had erstwhile been informally and perversely kind. I perceive it won't do to give way to impulse, Philipson resumed, feeling more and more every minute the necessity of acting up to his position. I flew in the face of the church's teaching, but I did it without malice prepense. Women are so strange in their influence that they tempt you to misplaced kindness. However, I know myself better now. A little judicious severity, perhaps. Oh my God. I mean, what does that even mean? What's he going to do? Beat her? I mean, it wouldn't be unheard of in those days. And honestly, Sue would welcome it. Yes, but you must you must tighten the reins by degrees only. Don't be too strenuous at first. She'll come to any terms in time. God, killing him, you fool. The caution was unnecessary, though Phillotson did not say so. I remember what my vicar at Chaston said when I left after the row that was made about my agreeing to her elopement. The only thing you can do to retrieve your position and hers is to admit your error and not restraining her with a wise and strong hand, and to get her back again if she'll come and be firm in the future. But I was so headstrong at that time that I paid no no need, and that after the divorce she should have thought of doing so I did not dream." The gate of Mrs. Edlin's cottage clicked, and somebody began crossing in the direction of the school. Phillotson said, Good night. Oh, is that Mr. Phillotson? said Mrs. Edlin. I was going over to see ye. I'd been upstairs with her, helping her to unpack her things. And upon my word, sir, I don't think this ought to be. What, the wedding? Yes. She's forcing herself to it, poor dear little thing, and you've no notion what she's suffering. 
I was never much for religion nor against it, but it can't be right to let her do this, and you ought to persuade her out of it. Of course, everybody will say it was very good and forgiving of you to take her to, forgiving of you to take her to you again. But for my part, I don't. It's her wish, and I am willing," said Phillotson with grave reserve, opposition making him illogically tenacious. Now, a great piece of laxity will be rectified. I don't believe it. She's his wife, if anybody's. She's had three children by him, and he loves her dearly. And it's a wicked shame to egg her on to this poor little quivering thing. She's got nobody on her side. The one man who'd be her friend, the obstinate creature, won't allow to come near her. What first put her into this mood of mind, I wonder? I can't tell. Not I, certainly. It is all voluntary on her part. Now, that's all I have to say. Phillotson spoke stiffly. You've turned round, Mrs. Edlin. It is unseemly of you. Well, I know you'd be affronted at what I had to say, but I don't mind that. The truth's the truth. I'm not affronted, Mrs. Edlin. You've been too kind a neighbor for that. But I must be allowed to know what's best for myself and Susanna. I suppose you won't go to church with us, then? No. Be hanged if I can. I don't know what the times be coming to. Matrimony have grown to be that serious in these days that one really do feel a fear to move in it at all. In my time we took it more careless, and I don't know that we was any the worse for it. When I and my poor man were jined in it, we kept up the junketing all the week and drunk the parish dry and had to borrow half a crown to begin housekeeping. Well, I'll end there. But interesting what she's saying. I mean, just interesting in the sense that she's saying we took marriage more lightly, oddly enough, than you're taking it. You know, for us, it was a, it was a party. We had a good time with it. We drank ourselves silly for a week and had to pay and had to borrow half a crown just to set up our house. And you, you stuffy old fool, taking it so seriously when you know it's the wrong thing to do. Well, here we are, you know. It's taken on a kind of soap opera-esque quality. It has a dint of General Hospital to it. Just a tinge, you know, because it seems like there's going to be a scene at the church you know, and we'll be waiting for for Jude to bust in saying, don't do it, don't do it. I don't think that's going to happen, but it would be kind of neat if it did. Hey, Shakespeare, it'd be kind of neat if it did. So what will happen? Will they get married? Will Jude storm into the church like Dustin Hoffman at the end of The Graduate, taking his bride back out down the aisle? Or will they, will they marry? Or will Sue slit her own throat before it comes to that? Hard to say. But I guess we'll find out on another spine-tingling episode of Obscure. And until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. And subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Jude the Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>